Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I am recording for Contrarians Corner for Crash. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. I'm joined, as always, by my co-pilot and co-host in this journey down the path of the contrary, Julio Oliveira. Julio, uh, we have arrived. I, th- I think it's very fitting. Uh, we come to a conclusion of our 90s erotic thriller arc just days before easter you know you want to talk about rising again i think that's uh we've we've risen indeed several times on this journey and a a fitting conclusion i suppose as we come to one of the 90s most controversial uh, erotic thrillers as we are here today to uh, welcome mr james spader at long last uh, this heartthrob of a man has made it to our uh, <laughs> podcast, our platform here. And of course, welcoming back Mr. David Cronenberg, Holly Hunter, uh, Casey Jones, the the whole the whole gang's back together. Rosanna Arquette. I mean, when I think Easter, I think James Spader. So I feel it's all fitting. We're just missing Travolta to have uh, a pretty sweet Lucas Hogan two reunion. It's Elias Cotes Cotes. I, I've always called him Casey Jones. Do we know how we say his last name? I'm gonna go with Cotias, but but he is Casey Jones. Okay, I'm sure he calls himself Casey Jones when he introduces himself to people. I I don't know. It looks like he had been riding hard off the Casey Jones success because the separation between this and the Ninja Turtles movie is like five years, six or maybe six or seven at the most, and he aged a good forty in that time. I think he you know showed up on set strung out like um like that scene and uh, where um, what's the Leave Schreiber movie where he plays the Bayonne bleeder, uh, Chuck Webner. Is it just called Chuck? Oh. Yes, I was going to say Wolverine. Um, <laughs> no, just the scene where he shows up to audition for uh, Rocky or whatever movie it is, and he's just, you know, his nose is kind of bleeding from all the coke he's been doing, and he's been up the whole night before. That's what I imagine uh, Elias Cotius's audition for this was. And he read, like, two of his lines. He's like, whoa, it's a pretty freaky movie you guys are making here. <laughs> he showed up with his hockey stick. Yes, he had the mask on and everything, and Cronenberg said, let's do one take with the mask. There's the one take with the mask and one take without your pants on. <laughs> We're not budging on either of those. This is how it's going to go. All right. In celebration of the donations received on last year's live stream for The Cure, as we covered Sliver, we pledged uh, with tears that if we hit this, we would do, uh, you know, one movie, two movie, three movies, or a maximum of four. And, you know, by the grace of God, we hit all of those tiers. So, 
Over the past few months, we have been covering 90s sexy thrillers, the erotic dramas of the day. We began with Jade, moved our way into Indecent Proposal, took a massive detour with Showgirls, and we're here concluding with the aforementioned Crash. I think we made ourselves a pretty pretty solid roadmap of the 90s eroticism. I'd never seen three of those movies, and you hadn't seen... Mm-hmm. Three of them either. Yeah. So we yeah, we walked into this not really having seen most of them. It's not like we arranged them knowing how things were gonna go. Like we didn't know how to arrange them best. We just kinda threw them at the wall and the way they stuck, that's how it worked out. But it feels to me like we accidentally scheduled a pretty solid descent into madness. Where every step we thought that we had hit rock bottom and then no, there was more depravity to find <laughs> underneath. Yeah. I mean, what was it, three months ago that we thought that Jade was as bad as it could get when it came to uh, kinky shit? We were so young and naive at that point in time. We still had Michael Bain and uh, what was it, Ken <laughs> King. Was that the guy's name that we loved so much? Early front runner for the Embry. Yeah, we had the, the whole world in our hands and we didn't know it. So as we conclude with David Cronenberg's crash from 1996, Uh, We want to welcome any returning listeners back to the Contrarians podcast. If you are a first-time listener, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, For our returning listeners, give us a moment here while we explain our gimmick to the newbies out there. Uh, So here on the Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we say. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as certified fresh. We shoot for about 85% and above. And we will make a case for maybe why that movie is a bit overrated, maybe what the critics saw in it that wasn't actually there. Uh, Conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is low-rated, nasty green splotch known as Rotten, and we'll make a case for the movie's positive merit and think about maybe some of the things that uh, went over people's heads or uh, maybe some things the critics had wrong. That comprises the first half of the podcast known as Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the film we covered, they just have to hang around until the second half. That's correct. Once we get to the second half of the show, Real Talk, that's where we stop pretending and we just tell each other and tell the audience how we feel about the movies. Uh, Sometimes we know. Sometimes we don't how we how each other feels. Uh, in this case, for example, uh, Alex had never seen Crash, and I'd seen Crash a long time ago. And uh, both of us literally just finished watching it today, shortly before recording. So really have no idea how the other one feels, which makes it pretty exciting. And then, of course, you guys get to find out if, if we really loved it or hated it as much as we said on the first half. Now, because... Uh, this episode is a multiple of 10. That means that it's a gray area episode, which means that there's a, a, an extra kink, mm. pun intended, uh, thrown nice. in Katrina's corner. So, yeah, being that this is 63%, uh, this falls into what we define as a gray area episode. Um, so since that, just like Julio said, is kind of going against the grain of what we typically do, the our way of adapting to these type of episodes is that... Uh, on a gray area episode, we find a movie right there in the middle, and uh, Julio will take one side of the argument, and I will take the other for the Contrarian's Corner portion of the podcast. When we get to the second part, real talk, that all remains the same. So, for Crash, I am going to be leading the charge against it, while Julio will be hard as a diamond in an ice storm behind the wheel, driving the vehicle forward. <laughs> That's right. I'll be defending it. I will be, I don't know. I didn't see what Ebert gave it, but you know, I, I guess I can't be Ebert. I'll just be in, in the in the universe of the movie. I will be Holy Hunter and you can be uh, Casey Jones. 
No. Because Casey Jones is more aggressive. Yes, way, way too much so. <laughs> For a second there, though, when you started talking about real talk, you said that we stop pretending and start getting real. I thought... For a second, you were reading the copy from the opening of The Real World, uh, <laughs> when two podcasters stop being polite and start getting real, which is basically this movie. It takes about five minutes for it to stop being polite and get very real. <laughs> well, Julio, at 63%, uh, it definitely split critics, much like it's going to split us. Uh, there's a clip on YouTube that I will make sure to extract the audio from to include in this podcast. It, uh, Ebert and Siskel just kind of arguing their conflicting thoughts on the, the movie yes. Crash. Yeah. So in your research, what were you able to find about uh, critics' thoughts on this? Are you going to read the novella from your Criterion copy of this? It was tempting, but no, maybe, that might be just for patrons. Uh, no, I got, I got a smattering of uh, fresh and rotten quotes, since it's a gray area episode. We're going to mix them both. I'm going to start with a fresh quote from Rob Humanick from Slant Magazine, who says, unnecessarily disturbing an equally profound inquiry into human desire, however self-destructive. It is profound. Uh, on, on the other hand, we have a rotten quote from Owen Gleiberman from Entertainment Weekly, who says, for a movie obsessed with the connection between sexual intercourse and car accidents, David Cronenberg's crash could hardly be more stationary. It, it, honestly, I was looking hard for those uh, car puns and car crash puns, and there weren't that many. I think that critics were still in shock when they sat down to write the reviews. I wish you, you would have found one from like a 10-year retrospective in 2006 where someone made like uh, a Lightning McQueen joke or, uh, you know, some <laughs> kind of parallel with cars because that would have been right around the time it was hot. Where's Mater? Get um, our done. <laughs> Uh, Jeremiah Kipp, from, also from Slant Magazine, uh, has a fresh quote, and it says, It's the cold survival logic of Darwin, where libertarians leave their past behind as if it were dead. And I just love that that reviewer basically compared libertarians to James Spader's character in this movie. I have no time for that. Next, Matt Brunson from Film Frenzy gives it a rotten score and says, An exercise in exploitation chic. I don't know. I've, I've always had trouble with the exploitation genre. I don't know when when it is and when it isn't exploitation. Uh, yeah, I would not classify this in the exploitation realm. So I I disagree with the whatever. What was his name? Matt Brunson. Matt Brunson. I, I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> Rob Nelson from City Pages, Minneapolis gives a fresh quote and says, With Crash, David Cronenberg drives mainstream cinema over the edge. That's oh a good man, one. that is good. That's like uh, <laughs> shit. That that's the type of shit that you um, write for like a, a host of E um, Entertainment Tonight to say before the commercial break. Like that's the lead into <laughs> the piece. That's that's wonderful. Uh, and finally, Jake Euchre from F Five, Wichita, Kansas. And it's a rotten quote and says, widely unwatchable, as if someone had made Andy Warhol's Frankenstein without being in on the joke. What? I th I think he's talking about showgirls on that one. I, I was with the F5 part because that's Brock Lesnar's finishing move, but then it just kept going and I was not, not into <laughs> it. And I don't think Warhol was joking. I don't know. This guy's just mad he didn't get to see Spader's dick in this movie. That's pretty much what it comes down to. <laughs> 
As are most of us. I mean, I watched this whole movie. I was anticipating seeing, you know, some uh, Robert California peen, and I was sorely <laughs> disappointed. I can't believe that this movie left you wanting anything. <laughs> I can't believe you didn't find it. Well, I don't know. You have more quotes for the second half. I would imagine there was a big part of this movie that was viewed as sexist because the majority of the nudity is women for a movie that preys so heavily on carnal desire for it to just, you know, well, I guess there's the the turning point with the homosexuality, so it's hard to classify it that. It builds as, up to it, Alex. That's, Not to yeah. jump too far ahead, but that, that, yeah. that's it requires buildup. You have to remember this movie was made in the mid-90s. It was a world before wild things. Uh, <laughs> yes. Cra- crash <laughs> walks so wild way. things could run is basically what happened. <laughs> so as I kind of made allusion to just a few moments ago, Julio does own the Criterion Blu-ray of Crash. For myself, this was the most work I had to do to track down uh, a film that we covered on here. It's the first time in years, uh, maybe two years, that I've had to dip into the fountain of the internet for this as this movie is streaming nowhere and you know i went to all the websites and databases that tell you what movies are streaming where nada in some situations i'll just buy the dvd but for this even on amazon it was going to be a week or so before it could get here and it was like 25 bucks for the dvd so uh i will make to run the background check before they could send you that (laughs) and they send it to you in the black plastic bag Uh, like (laughs) that was uh there were two wrestling magazines from the WF when I was a kid. One was the just WF magazine, and then two was WF Raw magazine for the mature fan. And uh, I was never allowed to get the Raw because it was it always had like Sable's tits on the cover or whatnot. But I remember it because the covers were more racy than Sports Illustrated swimsuit issues. They came in black plastic bags, so I remember friends of mine, you know getting accosted by their mothers when they got that in the mail. Uh, so the parallel there is Crash is the same way with fucking Roseanne Arquette's scarred up legs, the DVD cover, you know, going to have none of that. We got to put this in a plastic bag and ship that off to Austin. Point being, the internet is always there when you need it to be. I will make good Mr. Cronenberg on this. I, I need to get Videodrome. So oh, there uh, you go. I will make up for, uh, you know, lack of loyalty on this one. The copy of it I was able to track down. Pretty good. Julio, Criterion Blu-rays. I mean, there's nothing finer, so I assume the picture was gorgeous. You could see every inch of every scar on <laughs> Ilias Cotis's chest. It was, uh, in a way, more detailed than I needed and more detailed than I wanted, but then the movie sold me on the idea. I was like, it, this is necessary. You, you need could, to watch this on the highest definition possible. Could truly admire and take in uh, Holly Hunter's Johnny Ramone haircut in all its glory. <laughs> Actually, she had more of a DD. I, I know we talked about something recently where I cited Johnny Ramone's haircut. This was definitely more of a DD. Crash, directed by David Cronenberg, if you didn't know already. Uh, screenplay by David Cronenberg. This film was based on a book of the same title by one J.G. Ballard from 1973. Uh, Hula and I were discussing before we started recording... There's actually a name for the fetish in this movie. It's Symphorophilia. Now, I'm not going to say that a lot just because I don't want to get it confused and cite some other fetish unknowingly throughout the course of recording. (laughs) So Symphorophilia is car crash sexual fetishism. Uh, Julio, you know anybody that's down with this stuff? Uh, James Spader, Holy Hunter. (laughs) True. I should have talked to him at your last party about this. 
You're like, so does your dick go in the car? How does this work? <laughs> does it say on your on your research, does it say when this fetish started? Did it start because of the movie crash? I am oh. not going to Google the word symphophilia. <laughs> I'm, you're going to get fucking some seven foot hairy man with his dick in a gas pump somewhere. I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> so the protagonists in the book, much like the film, are sexually aroused by staging and participating in real life car crashes. We'll get to some of the similarities and differences in the second portion of this. Uh, Julio, I take it you haven't read the book, uh, but it's safe to say that the film has a much wider legacy and reputation than the its source material. Released in the U.S. on March 21st of 1997, it looks like its initial premieres fell within 96. There's a lot of delays of it getting released in different countries across the world due to its controversial nature, what was going to be cut, what wasn't. Yeah, it looks like it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 1996. It received special jury prize, a unique award that is distinct from the jury prize as it is not given annually, but only at the request of the official jury. For example, the previous year, both the jury prize and special jury prize were awarded. When jury president Francis Ford Coppola announced the award for originality, for daring, and for audacity, he stated that it had been con- a controversial choice and that certain jury members did abstain very passionately. The award has not been given since. So there you go. <laughs> Cronenberg killed the special award. <laughs> Premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, the screening provoked boos and angry bolts by upset viewers. There you go. Fucking 90s audiences. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, what were you expecting? Babe or some shit? <laughs> a budget of $9 million. How? And a box office return of... Uh, a little over twenty million. So, as we'll discuss, I mean, despite its NC seventeen ness, meaning it was a very limited release and what theaters would hold it and wouldn't. I mean, controversy creates cash, as sleazy E would say, and this definitely worked in that favor. I like I said when we talked about this, I can't remember if it made the episode or not. I have a memory of this movie being released when I was a little kid, so word traveled fast about this. <laughs> And Julio Soul, I mean, he saw it in the theater. You, I did, I did. I was gonna say technically you have memories of all the all the movies that we've covered in this arc. Jade and Decent Proposal, Showgirls, they're all part of your childhood, even if you didn't watch them just when they came out. Stepping stones in your sexuality. <laughs> sure, why not? God, I, imagine how he, fucked up you would be if you were like a fucking twelve year old kid and watched this movie. Like, you know, on your next family road trip, you're just like rubbing your hand against the upholstery in the car. <laughs> <laughs> Every time that the car goes to a, a car wash, you start sweating. You got like, your Casey Jones toy in the car and you're just staring at it intently for two hours, <laughs> listening to I'll Be Missing You by Puff Daddy on repeat as you just stare at this toy, wondering what's going to become of you. <laughs> Julio, the state of the opening credits in this movie, I felt like we were watching Johnny Mnemonic again. It was just absolutely ridiculous. It was, um, I mean... I assume for the time this was mind-blowing shit. Like, the credits in this movie, I can see Cronenberg, like, 48 hours straight with, you know, just the stacked cans of Mountain Dew around him, fucking around with whatever the PowerPoint program at the time was to make these. But like a lot of this movie, it does not age well. But it does put you in the mindset of, like, Lawnmower Man, where you're going to watch something kind of out there and futuristic. But yeah, that's the thing. If, if those credits preceded a normal movie, I would agree that they're out of place and 
cheesy, but the credits set the tone for the kind of movie you're going to watch. They're odd and they're kind of detached, cold. The the soundtrack, I love the music in this in this movie. It just it really it gets into your head and I, I think that it's necessary because the the things you're going to witness over the next 100 minutes are so alien to most of us that you need the filmmaking to get you in that mind space as close as you can. To me, that begins from the very beginning, like the with the, the opening credits and then the, the introductions to the characters, which are also, I mean, how economical is Cronenberg uh, that he doesn't really, there's no foreplay, so to speak, here. The moment that the movie starts, you're already into the into the machines and into the sex right away. I guess. To me, it was just like, what is going on here? Uh, and I mean, the questions continue because we immediately go to like an airplane hangar. And I know we talk about Holly Hunter a good deal, but Deborah Kara Unger plays mm-hmm. the role of Catherine in this movie. I think it's safe to say she's the female lead. Yes. Yeah. It's kind of a, a bait and switch with Holly Hunter's name in the credits. If the movie wasn't as good as it is, I would resent the fact that Holly Hunter disappears for most of the movie. <laughs> Yes, uh, but, it, but but also Deborah Carrunger is is good. She's really good, so she makes up for it. Uh, I mean, no time is wasted. We immediately go to uh, nudity as Catherine takes her breast out and presses it against. Is it a car or an airplane that she presses it against? Because they're in a plane. <laughs> I think hanger. it's a. I think it's an airplane. Okay. I think it's an airplane. No, yeah, it's an airplane because she's uh, she's taking flying classes, right? Yeah, and a dude comes up from behind her and just starts, you know, having his way. I I actually thought it was a prolific male porn star from the 90s named Rocco Sofredi. So for like five (laughs) minutes, I was on my phone trying to see... yeah, don't 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 just Google Rocco Sofredi filmography. You're gonna have a rough time with that. But I did crash Rocco <laughs> Sofredi and then kind of have to filter him out through the process of elimination. It was not uh, Sir Rocco. You you know imagine buying a ticket to the wrong movie and going into this. There is no time to process what's going on. You get the credits, but again, people are stupid. So someone could sit through that and be like, "Well, I thought it was a trailer," and then you know immediately titty and you know behind the cuff muff action going on, and then another smash cut. To me, as much as I did not care for this film, one of the greatest uh, protagonist reveals in cinematic yep. history as. <laughs> I guess James Spader, James Ballard in this film, is he a he's a director, a film director? I think they called him a producer. Okay. Well, I know what he's producing and it's good times in his office <laughs> because there's this nude woman bent over and the reveal is James Spader peeks over like Wilson from Home Improvement. <laughs> it's it's an amazing shot and it's a shame that we can't use that for the thumbnail in the episode. Because, uh, yeah, there's no way that uh, Apple Podcasts would let us go with that. No. <laughs> but but really, it's just, uh, I'm so happy we're in agreement because that was my note. It's like, best character introduction in the history of film. He His head just rises from behind this woman's butt. It's, it's great. And he, I don't know if you had this experience, Alex, but to me, he looked so... Uh, innocent even though he's in the middle of you know having sex with this woman in his office it might be that after all these years when i think of james spader i think of somebody that's just uh i think of robert california i think of Ultron, i think of uh the blacklist the guy in the blacklist and so to me th- that guy's just like cynical and hardened uh obviously older 
but here he still looks like a like a young guy in I mean I guess he has to look innocent because the story of the movie is kind of his his corruption. So I was surprised. I was like, man, now I don't know. Is is it is James Spader a really good actor that can't convince me that he's innocent? Or was he this innocent once upon a time? And now Hollywood has changed him into the James Spader that that we know today. That did take some adjusting for me watching this because I came into this thinking of James Spader as we know him now. So I was thinking of very dramatic pause, James Spader, and very, you know, kind of um, moist lips, James Spader. Always seems like he's got like an excess of saliva going on. But in this, he was, yeah, exactly like you said. He was like the first guy to die in a nom movie. He was just a little too happy to be there and a little too cutesy. And my thought is that this movie, uh, the making of it and the fallout of it, <laughs> it I don't want to say point. S- spoiled him, but it definitely made him a more hardened and cynical actor. He could have been Captain America, but instead he ended up being Ultron. I, I would I would quote something right now in a James Spader impression, but I honestly can't think of anything Captain America said. It says, I could do this all day. Sure. Speaking of doing it all day, yeah, the characters of Catherine and James Ballard, they're in an open marriage and they talk to each other about their extramarital affairs and how they don't really bring each other, the affairs, excuse me, don't bring them to full desire. Uh, They're left unsatisfied with these sexual exploits that they have. I mean, I don't know anyone in an open marriage, much less with a nice high-rise apartment that they discuss their sexual encounters on their balcony, but maybe this is what it's like. I I don't know. I can't relate to it. This is what the 1% is like. That's when you have enough money that, that you start creating your own problems. Or you start addressing problems that us little people in the 99% are not even aware that we have. I I saw it as a documentary. You you know, like when you watch a documentary about a subject matter that you are completely removed from, (laughs) uh, that's what this was like. I was like, oh, it's it's almost like a completely different species. And that doesn't mean that it's not interesting. It just means that it's it's not my experience at all. And uh, kudos to Cronenberg because he still managed to find a way in for me, uh, even though I can't relate to these people's experiences uh i mean i get i'm guessing that we're both on the same side we're like we've never had this problem of uh not finding our sex lives <laughs> of having sex lives that are very uh promiscuous and yet unfulfilling the the shame problem as they call it <laughs> Yeah, haven't quite been there yet. Nor have I had the next problem that James has where he's driving home from work late one night and is fumbling with something, becomes distracted with something on the passenger side and veers off and gets into a head-on collision with another car. Looks like the uh, car that hit him, or he hit, depending on your point of view. The driver, male, wasn't wearing a seatbelt because he flies forward, crashing through both windshields, and it uh, kills him on impact. Um, but we're introduced to the aforementioned Holly Hunter here, who plays a character of Dr. Helen, Helen Remington, as she was the passenger on the other side of this. And they're both just kind of caught in a moment. And they, uh, I guess they come to have, is would you call this a meat cute, Julio? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's very cute, but it's definitely a meat. It's a, it's a meat sexy, a meat hot. Holly Hunter, she, she pops a boob out. The, the filmmaking is smart enough to leave it ambiguous to where you don't know if it's an accident or not. Because James Spader doesn't know. He's looking at her across the the two windshields. And all he knows is that this woman is staring at him and uh, her breast is out. And if that doesn't say David Cronenberg's crash, I don't know what does. 
See, that is my issue right there. They ran through the opening credits. Just like, let's get this out of the way. This is where Crash should have hit the screen. <laughs> as as James Spader's uh, car hit the other car. Exactly. Big Batman and Robin letters. Crash. When Homeboy flew through the windshield, it should have freeze-framed with the dude in midair and then just said, David Cronenberg presents Crash. And then, like, when we get the shot of Spader underneath, it should have been, you know, James Spader is James Ballard. And then, you know, Holly Hunter gets her little name title. The shit writes itself. I'm trying to think. <laughs> I suppose that Rosanna Arquette would have gotten the and credit. It would have been with Elias Kotias and, uh, and, and Rosanna, Rosanna Arquette. Arquette. Yeah. I don't I mean, Sold. we're almost 30 years after this movie. They should try to gussy it up a little bit, <laughs> make something more presentable. Uh, now, Alex, all this is practical effects. So I'm surprised that you're not more enthusiastic about this movie just on that aspect alone. Oh, I give it props for that. I mean, you know, sun shines on a dog's ass once in a while. So <laughs> the fact that everything else going on is taking me out of it, I am not too withdrawn to see and appreciate the spackle of blood, the dude flying through the windshield, and then the makeup to have his face all distorted and shit. Absolutely fantastic. Cronenberg gets some props. I mean, there's this and Jason X. I got to give him props for a few things. <laughs> James fucked up his leg and, you know, he's been in the hospital for a while and he's got to rehab it. His wife's been visiting him there. Uh, in the same hospital is Holly Hunter. And this is where we come to, we're introduced to Robert Vaughn. Vaughn, as he becomes to know, and Casey Jones. Uh, we learn quickly he's just basically posing as a doctor in there just to kind of observe wounds, afflictions, things that he can get his rocks off to, take That's, pictures of them. This exists, Alex. It, this Even if it didn't have a name before this movie, I, I guess, made it uh, uh, more official. But this sort of uh, subculture, I imagine, of, of people that are aroused by by injuries, by car crashes, by all the stuff that we see in the movie. I mean, that that exists. And again, going back to the documentary idea, you know, I just like that there are filmmakers, storytellers brave enough to shine the light on this kind of stuff. I'm giving us a character like like Elias Curtis's Vaughn here, where off the top of my head, I can't think of another movie where you would be able you would be able to fit him. Uh and fit him in such a sympathetic way as he is fit here, right? Because I think that uh, a more traditional movie would simplify his character by making him a villain. Whereas like here, he's more of a misunderstood crusader in a way. So that's that's really complex stuff that you don't really see in most mainstream cinema. So I, I, again, I was, I was all in as soon as this guy walked in and, and started being being himself. Would you describe him as a character actor? I mean, he was in two of the four Ninja Turtles movies. <laughs> I mean, you got look who's talking under your vest or under your uh, wing too. <laughs> he keeps his cards close to the vest, is the expression that I was looking to shoehorn in there. Point being, with the exception of Casey Jones, his heroic play in that, I mean, he's kind of an off-putting individual. And the more and more you learn about him in this movie, uh, the more and more off-putting he becomes. And Sadly, I'm going to have a hard time enjoying uh, Ninja Turtles quite the same again. Because Casey Jones, you know, I was one of those kids that Raphael and Casey Jones were my favorites as a little kid. So now that takes on like a whole new connotation. Thank God I didn't see this when I was younger. 
from here, as is, you know, tradition and nature taking its course, James and uh, Helen begin uh, an affair. They first, I mean, they find each other. They're looking for her car, her the car that she was in the wreck with. And it's not at the impound lot. Uh, <laughs> fucking Cronenberg makes sure to get a jab in at like the legal and medical system too about, you know, she was in this car wreck that left her in the hospital for weeks. And she still had to pay for the car to be impounded. They make sure to work a jab in there. But it just leads to Holly Hunter just flat out being like, hey, let's go have sex. Because they get almost into like a fender bender. And it, of course, arouses them and and ignites the flame within. So they go and have sex in the parking garage at the airport. Again, maybe in years after this or even more recent years, this could have been kind of hot with James Spader and the raw masculinity he exudes now and with how well Holly Hunter's aged. But here it just came across as very awkward. And I mean, they don't, they don't even really know each other, which is nothing like um, out of the ordinary because people hook up like that all the time. But the point is the way this James Ballard character seems like such a dork. I don't buy him launching into this like the first person we have cmf sex with is like a secretary on set i can buy that i don't feel i don't think he's got you know the the chutzpah to be able to perform with someone like a futuristic holly hunter at this point but that's what's cool about the movie that it's it's holly hunter that makes the move he is still pretty shaken by the fact that he that they almost got into a car wreck and she's the one that just says hey let's go to the this garage there's really not that much activity and she's basically holding his hand and leading him through this sexual encounter, which I actually really appreciate that it's really intense and really short. I think that uh, movies have created this expectation that uh, sex has to be super spectacular and really long. And sometimes, especially given those circumstances where sensibilities are so heightened, yeah, it makes sense that as soon as she gets on top of him, he's going to be done. Like mm-hmm. the camera hasn't even finished doing a full circle around him, <laughs> and that's it. So that was that was cool. It, it, I actually felt it was very realistic, especially once you consider that he is just now entering this world. Holly Hunter, as we come to learn, she's she's kind of an old hand in this world of car crashes and sex and cars and uh, just being turned on by car accidents. But uh, she's just kind of easing him into it. Yeah, I think I said futuristic because I have in my notes here is Holly Hunter from the future because she her hair is like what you would expect an alien's hair to look like in a 90s movie, like someone disguising themselves as a human. And she's got like that coat on that's like perfect and odd. I think it's like maroon, if I remember correctly. And she's got those gloves on. It like appeared to me it would be someone in, you know, a skit or a comedy movie that's an alien pretending to be a human. That's that's her aesthetic in this movie. Well, this is L.A., right? Where this is all taking place? (laughs) I believe so. Well, there you go. Oh, and there's a massive bit of nostalgia in this because she she smokes pretty much consistently through the movie. The lighters in the car, Mm -hmm. man, ain't got that shit anymore. I, I don't know how I never burned myself on one of those at any point in my life. But well, you, were uh, not t- you were not trying to have sex with Holly Hunter <laughs> or James Spader in your car. No, I used it, though, except my car in college. And that's when I smoked, too. But I lost it because you remember um, that's where you'd like plug in the adapter for your CD player or some shit. The, <laughs> the cigarette lighter in a car was like the Swiss Army knife in a car. It was used for so many different things. Casey Jones 
Vaughn has like, I don't know, I wouldn't call it a cult, but he uh, operates and runs kind of this underground performance art show uh, that's based around, you know, demonstrations of car wrecks. And uh, he, he draws a pretty good crowd. If he charged, you know, 20 bucks a head, he'd get a good payday off of it. But you don't really know what it is at first because it's just him sizing this car up like he's going to have sex with it. You know, he's running his face up and down it and he's talking about the car wreck that killed James Dean. And my note says here, is Casey Jones going to fuck this car? Because uh, he's just rubbing against it. I think he's wearing like a, a dicky suit, like a work suit that he could just peel off and be completely nude under there. But alas, well, it's yeah, because he's, be. uh, he's pretending to be the mechanic later on. So I think he's, he's in full costume by then. He ends up uh, with his partner. What's his name? Seabreeze? Seagrave. Basically, they live to replicate these famous car wrecks, and you know, they part of their fetish is celebrities that died in car wrecks. So here they recreate the crash that killed James Dean. You know, they're obviously banged up because they were in a fucking car wreck, but uh, no one died from this. But the Department of Transportation's on to them. It's just like an underground festival or, you know, cockfighting or something that's super uh, deleterious to people around it. But maybe, you know, not completely illegal. But, you know, without Department of Transportation getting their, you know, finger in the pie, without them getting some of that money, that kickback from the gate, they're going to have none of it. So, of course, they come in and break it up. Yeah, I was also surprised that you wouldn't respond more positively to this because it's it's a little bit like wrestling. And we were just talking about it in the wrestler episode, right? Where it's like, it's fake, but it's real. It's it's not a, a real accident. They're recreating the accident, but they're getting hurt because they're still, it's real people. I mean, they're stuntmen, but there's there's an art to, to recreating these really dangerous uh, car accidents and making it out alive. Just like there's an art to having a wrestling match, and you know you get hurt, but hopefully you don't get you don't get hurt too much. Then you feel that resonance when you were watching them, where you're watching these these artists displaying their talent for for their audience. Son of a bitch! That was one of my notes later in the movie. Was <laughs> <laughs> pro wrestling, but with cars. <laughs> I mean, We've I been I, doing this for too long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can pay, you know, some mind to that, and I'll, I'll give you a little leniency in that. I'll, I'll lean in with a bit of curiosity. You know, I'll put my finger on my chin and think about it. Um, I've been to some pro wrestling indie shows that resemble car wrecks, and in some cases had uh, more victims than most car wrecks. You know, there's clearly, different from this than wrestling, there's clearly like a sexual thing going on here that I just don't get at all. Like all the men in the audience are sitting with their hands over their crotches or, you know, like their pillows that they brought with them. And the women are all, you know, Sharon stoned out, legs spread, cigarettes lit. They're ready to go. <laughs> There's some parts later in the movie that I definitely uh, agree with you. There, you know, a couple of the scenes where they're like, they plot out these car wrecks they're going to do. It's just mm -hmm. pro wrestling with cars. They're just basically like, all right, all right, this car is going to hit the ropes and bounce off. And then, you know, then I'll hit you from the side and you'll tumble <laughs> down this way. And then we fuck. And then, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then here's the ending. We fuck. <laughs> Crowd's going to love it. Send everybody home happy. I'm just now picturing James Spader taking a blade out from his Coke pocket and then slowly <laughs> cutting his forehead open. But this is where things start to spiral quickly for James Ballard. He has met Helen and he 
thought he's kind of dipped his toe into this new life. This kind of cool, hey, I've got this kind of hot side piece and we're kind of doing some dangerous shit. It's kind of, you know, when you start experimenting, when you get into your 20s and early 30s with uh, different girls that you date and kind of learning of different things, role playing, things like that. And, you know, it feels kind of fun and dangerous. And then you go to like an eyes wide shut party and you're like, hold on, what? Uh, that's James Spader here when they go back to Eric Stoltz's house from Pulp Fiction and (laughs) he starts like hanging out and listening to Vaughn talk and these things they do he's like uh, you know a a freshman in high school or maybe you know like a uh, middle classman that like started hanging out with the bad kids but didn't know how bad they were until it got too late and like the shots of James Spader on the couch when they're watching like those crash te- crash test videos he's just like how close am i to the door he's just looking around <laughs> trying to figure out how the fuck to get out of there it just gets crazier and crazier you know you think you have it kind of crazy enough with this dude willingly put himself putting himself in car wrecks but then gets back to the apartment and then you have Rosanna Arquette looking exactly like she does in pulp fiction and again this like was delayed some so this came out two years three years after pulp fiction in america but it would have been filmed the year after did cronenberg even ask her to change <laughs> he just gave her the the leg props like just put these metal things around your legs and you're good uh, to go. the forest gump braces that's yep. right take the piercings off yeah it's just insanity and eventually but ballard falls I, yeah he he follows he falls down this hole but here at first you can tell he's like what the fuck have you gotten yourself into but that's that's actually kind of a brilliant move on Cronenberg's part because, I mean, you just you just said it, and I had the same feeling. It's like I can relate to that feeling. I don't relate to to getting turned on from car crashes, but I can definitely relate to that feeling of getting stuck at the wrong party. I mean, I think that that that's kind of a rite <laughs> oh, of passage. Yeah, that's universal for, for people. Yeah, and so I I have a similar note when we got to this scene where I'm like, wow, he he really captured that feeling of being the odd man out at a gathering because even uh holly hunter who who is basically the the woman that brought him into the group she is into her own thing i mean she's really obsessed with the tapes and all this shit she's like his one lifesaver i guess just left him and it's just him by himself so when uh uh when casey jones asks him to come in to come with him to his room and shows him his his man cave, I could relate to that awkwardness and that fear of like, man, what did I get myself into? I I really like that. It's not just that we have that wide eyed performance from from James Spader, but also that Ilias Codius has this uh, really dark charm about him. I mean, I agree with you. He looks grimy and dangerous but he's also magnetic in a way that even if i don't find him uh attractive i can understand why somebody like uh, james spader whose life has been so dull that he's having trouble being satisfied sexually even though he has a super hot wife and he's having sex with a bunch of other women suddenly like when he invites him over when casey jones invites him over to this room and shows him his his toys and his pictures and everything. You're like, yeah, I can see why James Spader would be like, man, this guy is like nothing I've seen before, like nothing I have in my life right now. I want him. As far as a line of dialogue that was missing, that when they're walking through the woods back to Vaughn's place, when, you know, Holly Hunter's explaining everything to him, like what he does and, you know, the gratification they get from it and everything. I was just waiting for James Spader like, oh, word. 
Like, you know, trying to figure out where am I going to go from here? You know, and he doesn't have a cell phone, so no one can track him. So you can just see the terror wash over his face. It's like, this man is going to have me for lunch. And I'll like it. This ostensibly becomes a, a buddy film at this point where James and Vaughn are obsessed with everything as far as, you know, car wrecks, car crashes, all that go. Now, how did Catherine get wrapped up in this? Because even as flimsy as it is for me to to explain how James got wrapped up in this, uh, you know, getting turned on by the whole chaos of car wrecks and car crashes, I I still did I miss something? How did Catherine get wrapped up into this? It, to me, it just kind of seemed like all of a sudden she was blasting out of her pants at the thought of getting rear-ended <laughs> in more ways than one. <laughs> well, just by kind of by osmosis, because because. James Spader is getting something out of it, and we never see it. I, I appreciate that. Again, this movie's a hundred minutes because Cronenberg doesn't waste time with exposition that we can figure out on our own. So there's that key scene where they're having sex, and what she's saying to him implies that they've talked about Vaughn and they've talked about everything going on. And she sees, she can tell that that turns him on. I mean, it's a, this really long scene where he's behind her and she's just basically. She does some masterful dirty talking. Basically, it it becomes her just describing uh, James Spader's fantasy of having sex with with Vaughn. Yeah, this is some intense one way dirty talk because she yep. just keeps like she's doing all the work. Yeah, she's explaining the scenario, what would happen. She's describing you know taste, smell, climate, <laughs> feel, and throwing in all these just wondrous adjectives into the situation. It was but her Oscar a- clip. God, she's basically uh, imposing her sexual fantasy of James having sex with Vaughn onto him. James Spader's just kind of having sex with her, just kind of like, okay, can I finish, please? (laughs) Well, but she's, in a way, she's kind of like inceptioning him because <laughs> she she got that idea in his head even if it wasn't there before and i think it was before actually she i think that they've been married long enough and she knows him well enough that she can read him and uh, she could probably tell how excited he was about Vaughn when he was telling her about it he was trying to play it cool i mean like oh man let me tell you about this weirdo i just met in his house and his his really weird pictures of car crashes and but she could just tell that he had an erection the entire time what's the thing from uh Twilight, the imprinting. She's just imprinting on him. You will have sex with Casey Jones by the end of this movie. This is the part where the buddy comedy kind of comes to the full fold, uh, where James drives Vaughn's Lincoln around while he picks up a prostitute and has sex in the backseat. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, as as you do. That's what, <laughs> what guys do. Dudes rock, you know? Uh, I was trying to figure out, honestly, during this sequence, if this was your typical movie where the car is like on a track and there's just motion behind it, or it definitely didn't look like a green screen. A lot of this looked like they were actually driving around. I'm uh, pretty sure it's Cronenberg. I'm pretty sure James Spader was driving around LA while Ilias Codius was having sex with sex an actual prostitute in the back. <laughs> there were some lingering shots of just parts of the car though. Like one of my notes says here, I'm going to need this car to eat somebody. Cause it like, uh, <laughs> Fuck, what's the Stephen King movie where the car Christine? Or the truck? Yeah. There were parts of this that I was thinking 
man, they're really, Cronenberg's really focusing on it. And, you know, having never seen it, there was still the thought in my mind that maybe something crazy is going to happen that I didn't expect. So I was not writing out until the end that the car was going to come alive at any point. Thus, I was way more disappointed with the conclusion of this movie when the car did not come alive and eat somebody. I love that you were waiting. You kept waiting for something crazy to happen because nothing crazy was happening. <laughs> I didn't say that. I, I would use the word more morbid and strange than crazy. Crazy would have been like Spader, his head turns into a penis or something. That that would have been crazy. <laughs> That's the Lynch version of Crash. There you go. It just kind of starts sagging to the side. <laughs> They ditch the prostitute, they pick up Catherine, and then they go out on one of their drives. They come across a wreckage scene where known pervert Casey Jones takes his camera out and starts taking pictures of it. It's a bad wreck scene. And come to find out, it was Seabreeze. He was behind it as the highly sought-after accomplishment of recreating the death of Jane Mansfield in her car wreck. Uh, He attempted to do so wearing a blonde wig and sadly killing a dog. Upon seeing this, Vaughn, I guess, comes sexually aroused. His friend died. For what reason? I I don't exactly know. For art. He died for his for his craft. I, I like it because the, the movie gives you just this fraction of a second where Vaughn seems troubled. You know, he's, he's taking pictures and he realizes it's his friend and he's like, oh no. And then he goes, you did it without me. It shows a human side of him, but not the human side you thought you were going to get. Because what you would expect right now is the movie to have him have a breakdown, right? He's he's being obsessed with all this destruction and getting sexually aroused by this carnage. But then the moment that he sees that it happened to one of his friends or somebody that he cared about, that's when it he snaps out of it. And we would get a, that side of, of Vaughn. But no, instead, Cronenberg and Ballard double down on the fact that this guy is all in on this obsession, this this fetish. And yeah, it's kind of a bummer that his friend died mainly because he wasn't there to to watch him do it. But but yeah, I do believe that he, in, in at least part of him, is aroused by it, by by the accomplishment of having recreated Jane Mansfield's accident in such a perfect way. So he takes pictures of the wreckage and the scene, and then it's thrown out that the police are on to Vaughn. They want to search his car. What what exactly was the connection here? I had a hard time piecing this together. Well, they never really explain it. They just said that he was. They were interrogating him in connection to. Uh, somebody getting run over a pedestrian getting run over by the airport and, that's what uh, it was because i have yeah, a but- i have a, an actual line of dialogue uh, i was trying to figure out what the connection with the pedestrians was it was right they were investigating him potentially with a hit and run with uh, pedestrians and james spader delivers the line vaughn isn't interested in pedestrians but he does so <laughs> it's like the preamble when he says that and you know the James Spader, you know now, like the Robert California and James Ballard, there's no connective tissue between the two. But the way he delivers that line, Vaughn isn't interested in pedestrians, that's like, there he is. That's that's the guy I know. <laughs> I, I get it now. This is where he becomes. You know, it's kind of like when you listen to, uh, you know, Bruce's early stuff and his new stuff and compare the two and trying to find, you know, what's unique or what's uh, individualistic between the two of them and uh, that's where it comes into the fray. But nothing comes of it. It just basically James Spader gets this good line and then he's immediately cucked in the car wash. 
<laughs> is it really cucking if if he is kind of a passive participant? I don't. He's not really a participant. He's just kind of watching in the rearview mirror. So they go to clean the car at a car wash, and it's more disturbingly, it's like a human operated one. So these guys could just peer in and see Casey Jones going to town with Deborah Unger. Vaughn and Catherine are in the back seat and they start going at it. And James Ballard's just kind of looking in the rearview mirror. He said, practice. Can I have sex with my wife yet? The James Ballard story. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know. I think that it's it's this is part one. It's 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 a transaction because I think that this is in a way it serves two purposes. One is once more Ilias Cote is moving forward with the seduction of James Pater. He's saying, All right, well, if you won't have sex with me yet, I'm gonna have sex with your wife. But also it's in a way kind of giving James Pater permission to have sex with uh Patricia Arquette. No, Rosanna Arquette. Patricia Arquette was doing boyhood. She she had no time for this. So that's the rite of passage. You let someone bang your wife and then you get to have sex with Rosanna Arquette. No disrespect to Rosanna Arquette, but I would be expecting, you know, Brooke Shields or something to take that mantle. If I'm just going to be like, yeah, you can have sex with my wife. I want someone to say, okay, here's Gina Gershon. Like, <laughs> you got yourself a goddamn deal. But it wasn't, it's not even, it's not so much about the identity of who you're having sex with. I think that the, the point is that both James Spader and uh, his wife and uh, Deborah Kara Unger they are so numb to everyday life that through the movie, they keep searching for ways to come alive, things that will get them off. I mean, that's really what what's happening here. So it's not so much that it's a, a quid pro quo transaction, but no, more like, I'm going to show you um, that I can awaken things in you. You know, maybe you no longer derive satisfaction or intense satisfaction from having sex with your wife, but maybe you do from watching me Casey Jones from Ninja Turtles having sex with your wife in the backseat of your car in a car wash. And then maybe that will inspire you to search more intense experiences like having sex with my, I guess they're not married. I don't know what Rosanna Arquette is to Casey Jones, like officially, but they, they seem to be sort of a couple. So I think overall it's just Casey Jones trying to inspire James Spader to, to open up his mind and, and just go looking for these experiences. I guess. Sometimes when I watch like some off-kilter, you know, uh, stepmom porn, I'm just kind of like, man, am I weird? And then I watch <laughs> movies like this and realize there's real people like that out there. And I'm like, man, I'm good to go. Uh, I, I just don't understand like what's up with uh, Spader. Just getting sp- I mean, Playboy was still fully nude back in those days. Just fucking grab one of those and spank off in a rest stop bathroom. Do something risky like that. But that's the uh, thing, Alex. They're they're not like us. They they're just they're the one percent. They have too much money. People. They're too crash. Many things. <laughs> yes. I'm glad you brought up porn though, because that's really my main takeaway from this movie is that we as a society, as a civilization, society. we've kind of given porn the the short end of the stick. We've we haven't we've stunted the growth of porn, and we've let it just be this cheap sort of uh, shameful entertainment when it could have eventually evolved into art, which is what... saves marriages and helps people, but we don't want to admit the positives of it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, the the idea of capturing on film consensual sex, it can be elevated to an art form, which is what Cronenberg is doing here. The way that he shoots these sex scenes, weird as they may be to someone like you or me, uh, 
there's an art to it. The way he scores them, the way that he lights them, and the way that he surrounds them with this with this atmosphere, this this story. I mean, he gives them context. This is you know just a few steps removed from porn as far as you know the bare basics, like the 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 story beats. Right. This is basically musical chairs of who's having sex with who among the cast, but 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 that's where you. What makes the difference is what the filmmaker is doing with it, uh, and I think that that Cronenberg is elevating it. We are not used to it, but imagine if we actually had taken to it back in '96, or even if we took to it now. I mean, the low production value of your average porn video would be even more shocking because you'd be used to artsy porn, to high-end porn, like with real actors and real I was about real to say, get actual believable dialogue in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, even if they seem detached from what you and I know as reality here, Holly Hunter, James Spader, Deborah Kara Unger, Elias Codius, Rosanna Arquette, I mean, they, they're good actors. They, they're acting, you know? So it's, I think it's a bold experiment. And it's a shame that it didn't really pan out. Damn shame. Speaking of uh, Playboy from the time, it piqued my curiosity who the Playmate of the Year was in 1996. It was someone named Stacy Sanchez. Basically, I had to look it up because I was I was trying to see in my mind if I could guess who it was. I was way off on my timetable. I would have guessed Anna Nicole <laughs> Smith, and that was 1993. Jenny McCarthy was 94. I guess I didn't even know she was in Playboy. No, Pamela Anderson in the 90s. Legitimate blaspheme. None of them look like uh, Casey Jones, so none of them would have done the trick. Well, none of them have vulva-like scars on the back of their thighs, so (laughs) disqualified from the race here. (laughs) I mean, talk to me about these vulva-like scars, because that's that's where we're going next. That's right. That's what's next here. The the vulva, the vaginal scars. No, they're not vaginal scars. They're (laughs) vaginal-like. Those are two different things. Uh, Rosanna Arquette and all of her... I honestly at first thought it was like S&M gear, but then figured out quickly that's from a car wreck that she's her body's fucked up she's got like this brace that holds their upper body together and then of course her legs are we made the joke earlier the forest gump braces on them of course not making light of anyone in that actual situation but this movie is just so ridiculous it's hard not to kind of roll your eyes at it uh they go to a dealership uh i i guess is this to like feel the touch of the fresh leather or to smell cars because uh, they basically just kind of press against them and th- this is treated like their foreplay but I think that there's also the element of uh, having that salesman uh, being a part of it against his will, in a way, right? He doesn't know what he's getting into when he tries to make the sale or tries to help them. Uh, but again, this is really just to get them hot and bothered. So we cut to Rosanna Arquette and James Spader going to town each other in like a fucking Plymouth Horizon. Uh, <laughs> it's a really shitty car. But it's all equipped for Rosanna Arquette to drive. So there's all these gears and mechanics and nuts and bolts and and then there's labias and flabias and flip flaps everywhere as she lifts her legs up and she's obviously scarred from the implied wrecks that she's been in wreck or wrecks that have scarred her for life and left her in a a disabled state but that's you know cronenberg's got to get in his little artsy fartsy bullshit here and makes the scars on her leg look like a female vagina so that James Spader can perform uh, Colonel Angus on them. You know, it's he just goes to town. He starts <laughs> chowing down and it's very like we've watched and talked about some 
weird and nasty shit on this podcast from the movies we watched, even like horror movies with like just intense gore. It's very rare that like I have to turn away from the screen or just pull my phone out and just like launch the Twitter <laughs> app just to get away from what's happening in front of me. And this is an example of that. But didn't you find it kind of sweet that they they had that connection? That he no. <laughs> Because she just laid back with the kind of uh, give it to me thing. And then James Spader was like, hmm, what's going on over here? Starts, you know, it's just, it's grimy. It just feels gross. I mean, independent of, independent scars aren't gross. That's not what I'm saying. Like, disabilities aren't gross. But the way this is portrayed is just, it's clearly with the intention of making, it's, supposed to divide the audience between people like Julio that sit there kind of with like one arm on their shoulder and the other one <laughs> stroking their chin and saying, Hmm, this is, this is quite good. And then people like me like, come on dog, let's, let's move it along here. But it, independently of whether you find, uh, James Spader humping her scar, uh, arousing or, or, or not, the, the fact remains that it is a necessary step for him and and as he keeps getting as he keeps delving deeper and deeper into this world and, and going back to the scene in the car wash right you you don't get here unless first you have that stop at the car wash where he sees uh his wife and uh Casey Jones having sex not even just not just having sex having aggressive sex in the back seat and then you don't get there unless first he's had sex with Holly Hunter and so on. So even though the movie doesn't have much of a plot to, to speak of, there is an escalation built uh, throughout these sexual encounters. And I think that a lot of people kind of miss the mark. Miss, they, they miss the point there because they were just too distracted by how shocking it was. But it needs to be shocking. Well, that's not even the tip of the iceberg here because we're just kind of ramping up right now. We're on the roller coaster. We're going up. It's click, 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 click. Vaughn, James goes to visit Vaughn when he's at a tattoo shop and he's getting all these uh, all these car emblems tattooed on his body. Naturally, the natural course of action, the chain of events, is this leads to James and Vaughn on the side of the road somewhere. I mean, they're they're going for it. My note here says <laughs> dudes rock. And they, you know, they're <laughs> giving each other sexual favors here and there. And they, I, I think it's implied, if not shown, uh, like I said, my version seemed to be a little bit different than the one Julio watched. Uh, or if I haven't mentioned that already, it seemed to be. Do they go for the full Monty here? Do they go all the way? I thought so. Did your version show uh, Spader getting a tattoo? Uh, no. And it kind of, the sex scene between them kind of seems to fade away right as it's starting to get to the... <laughs> The, the whole cornicova. <laughs> so it's like that classy uh, pan left. And then yes, you exactly. Just, you just see the birds flying. No, no. The Criterion version has Vaughn asking James Spader to get a tattoo. And so Spader gets a tattoo. And uh, man, it's a shame that you haven't seen it because I was going to ask you where you thought that he had gotten a tattoo because it's not clear. What you see next is that Vaughn is peeling there in the car and mm-hmm. Vaughn is peeling the the bandage off the tattoo, and uh, and starts kissing it and licking it. So I mean, I imagine it was somewhere in his crotch area, you know, just the way it's shot. And then so that goes on for a while, and then they eventually they build up to having sex. You could get like uh, a Mercedes emblem right above your dong. That would be pretty sexy. <laughs> Maybe uh, like a Volkswagen. I just wish I knew what part of James Spader I was staring at. Sex intensifies, or at least their uh, preamble, their lead into sex is they're making out and swapping spit, swapping oral favors, and then I, I guess it's implied that they end up 
banging each other, which, hey, man, get a nut any way you can. In any car you have. In any car. So from here, is does Vaughn go on a rampage, or is it just kind of like, is he just intensifying his flirting? Well, that's that's how I took it. I think that that's the next thing, right? Because in the end, yeah, you know, they have a tattoo, they, they have matching tattoos, and they, they had sex, but it's still, it's I mean, it's just sex. Or they make it sound like this is the first time that James Spader has been with a man. It still doesn't feel anywhere near as uh, scandalous as the other things that have been going on in the movie. So really, in a way, them having standard sex is just foreplay for the real climax, which is what happens next, which, uh, where Spader goes to his car and then Vaughn starts crashing into him with his own car. I, I guess this is how they do things. And this is, again, you know, Spader trying to, this is my life now, you know, trying, <laughs> trying to make sense of it and accepting it all. It's, it's a different kind of car sex. Back at home, Catherine explains to James that her car has been tampered with. And I guess this is like a no-no in the circles they run in. <laughs> I would take it as like a, a love note or, you know, a yeah, secret yeah, yeah. admirer thing. But It's like a poke. But they seem very concerned by it. A, a poke. Sorry, it took me a second to register that. They seem concerned by it. And I guess fucking James Spader is Gene Gray because he just runs his hand across it and... <laughs> Is able to say it's Vaughn. I, I mean, is there any like trademark to that, or is he just at this point one with him mentally? Well, I think that's exactly what the movie's saying that uh, they've he's gone so far down the rabbit hole that he's dedicated himself to this obsession so much that his senses have sharpened, and now he can he can recognize Vaughn's car because he's so connected to it. He can recognize it just from the the indentation that it left in his wife's car. That is such a testament to the the strong connection, the bond between them by now. I guess. So they set sail to go find Vaughn. He knows what's coming, and he's waiting basically on the shoulder of the freeway, kind of like the on the entrance ramp. And very, very dangerous, precarious place to be, but that's where he chooses to hide out. And once the, they pass the on-ramp, he peels out and... Uh, is he trying to run them off the road here again with like all the sexualization and flirtation that has come with all these things? I don't know who's trying to hurt each other or what's going on here. Because that's the point. I mean, they they have reached uh, this level of uh, obsession of where it's all melted together, right? The the pain, the danger, the the adrenaline. It's all. It's just it's just a search for pleasure, and I think that. Clearly, Vaughn is going... It's not that he's trying to kill them, but he is definitely looking for that extra jolt that he gets from from a car crash, from from just the danger. It's like, if they die, well, that's a shame. If any of them die, that's a shame. But basically, life is not worth living if you're not pursuing your, your obsessions this way. I think that maybe the most fascinating aspect of the movie is that you can't really tell if Cronenberg and Ballard are telling a cautionary tale about what could happen to you, how you could become dehumanized if you pursue, if you give yourself over to your obsessions uh, this way, or if they're actually celebrating it, if it's meant to be an inspirational tale and telling you, look, if you're unhappy in life, you owe it to yourself to pursue the things that make you feel alive. In this case, for Vaughn, is to get in these situations where he has made a strong connection with these two people and the next step in that relationship is to run them off the road. Now, are James Spader and 
Deborah Kara Unger on the same page. Uh, it doesn't look like it, but then the ending of the movie kind of, it seems like it's telling you that, well, maybe they got to that place after all. But anyway, before they even reach that level, so what happens is Vaughn ends up, as he's trying to run them off the road, he ends up running off the road and, and he dies. Uh, kind of like the big shock of the movie but in, and that's what I was telling you, you know I'm like are we is his death a moment of triumph or is his death a tragedy or can it even be both at the same time it's it's just to me that's great filmmaking from Cronenberg great storytelling from Ballard now that leads to a, a really weird but also really appropriate I guess mourning a way to honor his memory, where uh, live by the sword, die by the sword. Yeah, where where uh, Roseanne Arquette and Holly Hunter, I guess, decide to celebrate his life by having sex in his car or the remains of his car at the impound lot. I guess we never really see them have sex. They they make out and they cuddle. Maybe that's as far as it went. But yeah, and then after that, all, all that's left is really the the big question mark of now that Vaughn is is gone. What happens with James Spader and Deborah Carr Unger? What happens to that marriage? I guess what I took away from it here in this closing scene is that James runs Catherine off the road. They basically try to create a, cr- a crash scene type scenario. She actually flips the car and lands. Uh, but when he goes to check on her at the scene, she's kind of under the car, but it's really she's and she's fine. She's kind of cut up and uh, her injuries, injuries are superficial, I guess. And they seem disappointed by this. So were they trying to, were they trying to create art where they, she became like Rosanna Arquette or she became, you know, crippled for life type thing. Is that what we're supposed to believe? Cause he tells her maybe the next one. So are they trying to create chaos here? I think it is because she, cause she seems pretty out of it. And my read is that, you know, again, they're still searching for for that that jolt, that thing that will make them feel alive. And I think that Spader gets it from running her off the road, but she doesn't quite get it from the car crash because she's still okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's him reassuring her that maybe they'll just keep trying until they get as good at it as Ilias Cotias and Rosanna Arquette did back in the day. And he's the the torch has been passed, and James Spader is a new Vaughn, and I guess that will eventually it's the, make. It's the end of Dark Knight Rises, but instead of like JGL uh, Tarzaning into a cave, it's James Spader having sex on the side of the like this embankment on the road with uh, his wife. It, it it all makes sense now. You just had to put it to me that way. Yeah, I mean, and again, it's Los Angeles, so nobody bats an eye. They're just having sex out there in the middle of the day. For real. Like, he just slowly takes down her pants and is just going to town behind her, and people are driving by. And, you know, this is uh, the camera starts fading out, and you see the skyline of LA, and lean on me starts playing. <laughs> and then we fade to the credits. But the thing is, like, there was a car accident, you know? <laughs> Somebody must have called 911. Nope. Just another day in LA, baby. All right. Well, well, that was Crash. I think that we, we're going to have a very interesting discussion coming up on Real Talk. Yes. Greatly anticipating what will become of this. So let us move along to Real Talk. It's not for a mainstream audience, and despite a big-name cast and a director who typically stands for quality, I was more depressed by this picture than impressed. In Crash, James Spader plays a filmmaker with a penchant for public sex who develops a sexual relationship with a woman played by Oscar winner Holly Hunter, whose car, get this, he crashes into 
by accident and kills her husband. Pretty hard to watch this scene and not say, oh, come on, this is ridiculous. Later, James Spader's character looks on from another car as his blonde wife, Deborah Cara Unger, is willingly terrorized by a whacked-out performance artist played by Ilias Koteas, who likes to reenact celebrity car crashes. That performance artist character is truly twisted. He would like to drive cars that have been involved in celebrity car crashes, and he has theories about car crashes that are plainly idiotic, I think. Crash was directed by David Cronenberg, the adventurous Canadian filmmaker of Scanners and Dead Ringers fame. And my honest reaction is that the subject of Crash left me feeling empty, not even challenged in the am I hip enough to get it way. Crash has some beautiful bodies on view, but also some ugly ideas. And as I said, I think it really did leave me cold. Well, of course, it was intended to leave you cold. I think I liked the movie a lot more than you did. I wow. would like to make it clear that most people are probably going to hate it, be repelled by it, or walk out of it, just Why? as they did at the Cannes Film Festival. Why is that? Because it's too tough for them to take. Oh, you mean well, really Roger? Is. Yes, it is. It is. Think, it wait, is. Wait a second. Sex involving wounds and blood and scabs and braces. A lot of people don't want to see it, don't want to have oh, anything but, but to do with it, don't want to be close Wait, to it. I want to be clear. Do you think that that's my objection, the nature of my objection? I felt that no. your objection was that you didn't really bring any sympathy to what he was trying to do, and I'll tell you what he was trying to do. He's trying to make a pornographic movie without pornography. He's taking the form of a pornographic movie without the function or the content. He's substituting car crashes for the usual erotic stuff in order to show the mechanism yeah. of human compulsion well, and obsession. Okay, but wait a second, and it's right. a fascinating study of the way the mind works wait in connection second. with images that right. we connect with sex. Roger, it can't. I'm, I'm going to review the movie and then I'll review your review. My objection to what you said is that I think that there are, quote, soft porno stuff in the picture. When you see sex on the hood of a car, when you see people mm -hmm. making None it in bed... None of the sex scenes in this movie are directed in a way to be erotic. Oh, I think that the oh, I think that the uh, the one scene in bed between Deborah Carr Unger and Spader, I think that that's intended to be erotic. I think a woman touching her breast, pulling it out of her bra, that's intended to be erotic, and I think it can be erotic. I'm saying that the ideas in the film, said by the performance artist, that somehow this is a connection between life and death, yeah. that's well, a bunch you know, of the movie doesn't it's a, uh, the movie thinks so too, Gene. The movie uh -huh. is about crazy people. Yeah, that's and, what it's about. The movie doesn't argue these people are right or mm -hmm. even that they make sense. But, but are they interesting? Yes. Not to me. You've never seen anyone like this before. Um, well, well I've seen, have. I haven't seen a lot of people in bad movies before that I don't like either. Okay, when we come back, one of the issues... All right, we are back. And before we go into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we tell our patrons what to expect on our patron. And we tell non-patrons what they're missing out on. So maybe they decide to become patrons after listening to the segment. Uh, if you're a patron, you have access to stuff like uh, deleted clips that didn't make it into the episode. Uh, you also get our exclusive bonus episodes that are on the Patreon feed. This month, we'll have an episode on The King of Comedy. Uh, Marty Scorsese, Blind Spot for Alex, and a movie that I haven't seen in forever. So it'll be pretty exciting to revisit that. That's that's a pick from uh, our patron, Jamie Russell. Uh, Jamie also got to pick our next bonus episode on the main feed of the show, which will be for Tango and Cash. Another blind spot, this time for both Alex and myself. Uh, so yeah, looking forward to both of those. Yep, I, I, I am pretty excited. The The second half of, uh, of April looks promising. Now that we don't have any of this sex stuff... Uh, Weighing us down. Thank God. 
but also another feature that you can have access if you're a patron is uh, Contrarians After Hours. This is uh, the segment where Alex and I just talk about other things that we've watched or things that we've played since uh, the last time we we conversed. So what are we going to be talking about, uh, at least on your end, Alex, and Contrarians After Hours this time? I've watched a few movies since we last met. Uh, I am now a subscriber to Peacock, the NBC platform, as I can't remember how much of this I vented about to you last time we met about the WWE Network mm-hmm. moving over to Peacock. Uh, I've, because the transition's been so incredibly disappointing and not well executed, I've found myself spending most of the time just searching the archives of Peacock to see what else is on there. And, uh, a lot of watching King of Queens started that from the beginning and <laughs> God, it's great. Um, their movie vault is actually fairly respectable too. I think that there's some good stuff to go through on there. No crash though. No, there is no crash. <laughs> uh, but as far as the Patreon goes uh, for contrarians after hours, we will be discussing the 1999 film go directed by what's his name? Something Lehm- Lehman, Doug Lehman. Yes. Oh, man, that's a great movie. Uh, yeah, I had never seen it before, and I just watched it this morning. <laughs> a very, very 1999 Timothy Oliphant yep. with his sideburns and spiked hair. So I will be talking to Julio and bouncing my feelings off of his and seeing uh, where we sit on the film Go, starring Katie Holmes, <laughs> which I believe she would have been top billing at the time because of Dawson's Creek, yep. if I remember correctly. It was the Katie Holmes experiment. Before, yes, be- and before Tom Cruise ruined it all. Man, that movie is so late 90s everything. You got Katie Holmes, Jay Moore, Tay Diggs, Brecken Myers in it. Scott Wolf. I mean, yes, Scott Wolf. <laughs> the elusive Sarah Polly as the lead in it. I didn't know it was her because the, the poster slash box art, the picture of her on it looks nothing like Sarah Polly. So when she showed up in the movie, I was like, hmm? So... <laughs> Be discussing my first time viewing of that. Julio, what have, what are you bringing to the table? Uh, well, it is award season, so I keep trying to catch up on, on awards movies that I haven't seen yet. I watched the documentary My Octopus Teacher, which was quite an experience, Alex, and I have been torn on whether it was a positive or a negative one. So I'm we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, but the other big thing that happened uh, recently is that I uh, hooked up my Xbox 360 again. And uh, I ordered, I think I told you, I used the money for from my my Biden bucks to buy Mortal Kombat go. versus DC, which is not available on Xbox One. Like You can't play it on Xbox One. Uh, so That game is like 10 years old, if not older. Yeah, but there are older games that are, are retrofitted, and you can still play it on oh, the Oh, yeah, Xbox no, no, One. no. I was just meaning to say I'm surprised you've never played it before is basically what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's kind of like it, it, I missed that window. I was not into fighting games when it came out. Uh-huh. But then it was brought up recently, and I was like, you know, it's probably pretty cheap, which it was, but I need to hook up the, the 360 to, to be able to play it. So I did. And uh, so so we'll talk a, lo- a little bit about that, about the game, and also just the the experience of going back one generation, at least. Well, I guess it's two generations now <laughs> on my platform, my gaming platform, uh, temporarily. So go, my Octopus teacher, Xbox 360. Yeah, sounds like a good after-hours segment. So 
If you are interested in any of those things, go to patreon.com slash contrarianprime, take a look at our tiers, decide which tier fits your desired contribution best, and uh, join the patron family. $1, $3, $5, and $10 are selective tiers for less than the price of a sourdough jacket jack-in-the-box, which they are discontinuing. So if you want one, you better go go get them. But that's not the point. The point is... Sandwich like that's going to cost you about three fifty. You could pledge to the Contrarians on Patreon and still have two fifty left over. <laughs> you could pledge to the Contrarians and then walk up to the gas station and buy yourself a twenty four ounce White Claw. I mean, and then you can listen to our after hours and read our notes and just have yourself a grand evening. Listen to so, all the inappropriate stuff that didn't make it to the official cut of the crash episode. Yeah, it's basically at this point there's the two levels. The Mm, we're not sure that's appropriate enough for like the, the main episodes we'll put on, on the Patreon feed. And then there's the extremely rare but also happens. This isn't appropriate for anyone. Let's cut this and then take it to the incinerator and burn it forever. Let's forget this was said. Speaking of let's forget about it. Crash. <laughs> uh, to put a pin on the Patreon... Go pledge. If you have already, we so greatly appreciate it. Uh, And the reason I stress it so much is because I've really taken uh, joy in covering the movies that our patrons have uh, submitted to us. So I look forward to more of those in the future. And before we get into real talk for Crash, we're going to run, once again, the Livestream for the Cure promo. Because, guys, you need to be there, uh, not just for our segment, which will be on May 22nd, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, but for the entire live stream, if you can. It's an awesome event. Here's the promo. My name is Nicholas Haskins, and I'd like a moment of your time to tell you about the fifth annual live stream for The Cure. To do that, I brought along two people whom I couldn't do this event without, Gerald Morris and Dan Brennick. Over the past four years, the live stream for The Cure has raised over $30,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. That contribution is helping to fund research into cancer immunotherapy, training the body's immune system to fight all forms of cancer. This year, we're aiming for our biggest goal yet as we try to raise $15,000 in 50 hours on the air. Tune in May 19th through the 23rd as we're joined live by podcasters and content creators from around the world. With your help, we can continue the fight for a future immune to cancer. Together, we can make a difference. So, Livestream for the Cure 2021 edition. The Contrarians, like I said, it'll be May 22nd, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The movie... So, by the time that you guys listen to this episode, or poll, the results are in. But at the time of recording, we still have six days to go. So, even though it looks like there's a clear winner, uh, we gotta play fair. We gotta let all the votes come in. And then uh, we'll announce... Uh, what movie we're doing on that segment. But in the meantime, just know that uh, it'll be fun, just like Sliver was fun and just like Basic Instinct was fun. I'm just glad we're getting away from the 90s sexy thriller formula. Well, how could good. we... Where else could we go after Crash? I We've covered, like, we've hit what would have to be considered the Mount Rushmore, at, at least of the 90s era, and then beyond with what we're discussing here today. Crash. David Cronenberg's Crash. Boy, was I thoroughly unimpressed and underwhelmed by this movie. Oh, no. Why, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> not not hardcore enough? 
I thought when we laid this out, this was going to be like the perfect arc. And in retrospect, I almost would have preferred we went backwards from how we did it. I know it, it was laid out meticulously for to be in line with our episodes, but uh, man, <laughs> I think that's we started with Jade and there was still a sense of like levity and fun to it. And then so like where Jade kind of left us, it's not like we were in the clouds. We were like six feet off the ground. And then <laughs> since then, we turned and started coming back down and just have been hammering into the ground since then. <laughs> I I have to disagree, Alex. In in, in I mean, as far as the, a lot of intel men more intelligent than myself disagree with my stance on this movie, so I'm fully open to any and all opinions differing from mine. I mean, it's a great area. And I, so just as many people agree with you. Well, and, and you know, as we'll get to, I'm fully open to a rewatch of this to see if it works better for me. But on March 31st, 2001, sitting down to watch this eating Denny's, I was just completely. <laughs> unfulfilled when this movie was over you're looking at the marinara sauce that came for your for your mozzarella sticks and looking at the the vagina like scars you know, like this Ugh. doesn't match <laughs> poor choices um okay before before we get into how it worked for me and how it didn't work for you uh before we get into my kinks let's uh let's go through the remaining rotten tomatoes quotes that i have once again, it's a mix of fresh and rotten. This time we're going to start with rotten from Janet Maslin from the New York Times, who says, Mr. Cronenberg, for once oddly inhibited by brazen subject matter, has made a meticulously stylized and controlled film that leaves many of its characters' ideas muffled and lacks the true audacity its material demands. So she's basically saying that she doesn't think that Cronenberg went far enough. Without getting too much into real talk yet. Do you agree, Alex? Is that one of the reasons this movie disappointed you? No. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what they wanted. Well, you, that's you, the whole point. You, you said it in Contreras Corner. No, James Pater penis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, no, it just got to a certain point of this where I was like, this is just weird for the sake of being weird. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like they didn't really introduce anything into the movie that didn't pay off in the end. And also yeah i'm pretty content with how far they took things um you might agree more with uh ken hankey from mountain express Asheville, north carolina oh ken yeah he's back uh this uh this is a fresh quote but it says one of the most uncomfortable movies i've ever seen the fact that it's a fresh quote i i guess says that he he's okay with being uncomfortable he he expected to be uncomfortable yeah it happens James Kendrick from Q Network Film Desk gives a rotten quote. Uh, he says, While it is brilliantly crafted on a technical level, Crash is completely devoid of any human emotion, which only serves to distance the viewer farther than he or she already is. I agree with that heavily. I think that's part of why uh, Roger Ebert was such a big fan of it, though. But I, I agree with what that review says, and that's a big part of why it didn't work for me. I can definitely see that. I, I can definitely see that. Uh, another fresh one, this time from Margaret A. McGurk from the Cincinnati Inquirer, who says, it may be the best movie you'll never want to see. I guess you'll never want to see again. Yeah, that, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Unless you read the reviews, you saw the tomato meter score. Uh 
our last rotten one comes from John J. Puccio from Movie Metropolis, who says, To say this movie is sick, it's too facile. Let's just say it's perverse. Crash is a grotesque film filled with vacuous characters and a destitute theme. He was offended. Which is? <laughs> Cars are hot. Yeah. And our last fresh quote comes from Michael DeQuina from TheMovieReport.com, who says, All of the sex makes it look like porn. But no porn film has such strong thematic subtext. Then again, not that many films, period, provide such fascinating food for thought. It's like he was listening to real talk. <laughs> so, I don't even know where to start, Alex. <laughs> Actually, I do. I do. I do. Because I have... This was one of the the thoughts that I kept coming back to while I was watching Crash. And it was that Cronenberg was doing what... I think Verhoeven and maybe even Esther has were trying to do with showgirls in the sense of provoking the audience. I think that Crash as a movie, whether you like it or dislike it, elicits strong emotions, you know, that, that scandalous, that, it, it shocks you. And, uh, uh-huh. and I think that showgirls, you know, we had that long discussion. We gave so much time to showgirls trying to figure out what the hell was going on there. And I, I I believe that some of it, some of what it was trying to do was to provoke. And it just fell flat because the execution was just not effective. In this case, I think the execution is on point. Whether you find it soulless or not, uh, whether you find it boring even, I guess. But there's there are things about Crash that I think that when... When you talked about them and when you see them happen, it they shake you, at the very least momentarily. Would you agree with that, or were you even were you just completely checked out, or it didn't affect you at all? No, I'm definitely open to what you just said. The idea that this accomplished what people argued that Verhoeven and Esterhaus were trying to. I think the bottle explanation, the synopsis is. It just got to a point, and I understand this is based off a novel, uh, it, where it was just like being weird for the sake of being weird. You know, I like Cronenberg. I loved The Fly. Uh, I do like Videodrome. But obviously, one of his staples is his unique approach to filmmaking. Um, so I was able to follow the story for the most part. Uh, we kind of fumbled through some of the plot recapping in the first portion because the version of the film I ended up watching was kind of chopped up a little bit. So Julio had to help me kind of piece a little bit of it together specifically at the end. Um, but I was with it the whole way. It just got to certain portions where I was like, all right, this is just for the sake of making the audience squirm with no real redeeming value or social message of any type. And on top of that, I the fucking score drove me insane. It was so repetitive. And I, <laughs> were you being sincere when you said you really liked the score? Uh, yeah, I was. I really like it. Okay, <laughs> I I think it fits. You know, I I wouldn't like it in in other movies. I I remember who you referenced in Contreras Corner, but to me, it made me think of Michael Mann. The, the mm-hmm. I was thinking of Manhunter, that kind of eighties okay. synth score. It it had something like that, but. I think it, it, in another movie, it, in a different movie, it wouldn't work. But in this one, I I, I felt like it was right on point. Uh, I told you I was gonna save my my theatrical experience story for real talk. So here it is. <laughs> I was uh, I was in film school when when Crash happened, 
when Crash was unleashed upon us. And uh, I don't know that I would have gone to see it if not for the fact that, you know, I was in film school and so it was brought up by our teachers. So I went to see it and uh, with with my friends. The first thing I remember is we lost probably about a third of the audience. And by lost, I mean that people walked out of the auditorium when oh. uh, when James Pater and uh, Elias Cotias started making out. Which, oh. yep, which you know, it was Peru is a very conservative country. Uh, I'm sure it's gotten better since then, but it was it was the mid '90s, and it was just it was not surprising. I mean, I remember my my friends and I just found it funny, you know, that it was like, wow, they held out this long because obviously all those people that walked out they had to have been really uncomfortable. But it's at yeah. least an hour before Spader and Cotias hook up, and. Uh, they were just—I I mean, I don't know what they were expecting. <laughs> you know? How they thought that the movie was gonna go, where, where at some point they were gonna be okay with it, and uh, and yeah, two men kissing was too much for them. Um, we're out. Yep, that was it. Uh, and then the last thing that I remember out of that whole thing is that I actually wrote a review. It's—I guess it's a way to get extra credit, a review for like the the film school newspaper or whatever, and. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was pretty down on the movie. To me, it just felt like it was, I guess I felt like it was gratuitous. I mean, you know, I was a fucking teenager. I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> I was, I, I remember just reducing the movie to a very basic, to its very basic elements of like, oh, it's it's just a bunch of people having sex. And now that I've watched it, all these years later, I watched it and I was like, yes, it's that. But there's, there's more to it. Even if it was just people having sex and there was no subtext to it, I think that the way that Cronenberg shoots it, it's it's pretty uh, compelling. Uh, but I I actually think that there's more to it. There's that he's talking about, you know, obsession and kind of at the the he's talking about problems that I don't have and that you don't have and that most of our maybe every single person that we know, like they don't have them, but I know that exist, you know, that, that mm-hmm. unhappiness, that sense of unfulfillment when you should be uh, fulfilled. And I want to say that we've had an episode recently where we talked about something similar, but uh, in this case, yes, it's very unrelatable, but I know it exists. And to me, it provided a window into that, that state of mind, you know, it's like, what do you do when you're just like so miserable and you're just so, desperate to feel that you would turn into this sort of extreme behavior of course i i agree with uh it wasn't ken hanky with whoever said that it's it's kind of uh emotionless that they're, they're the characters are devoid of emotion that you don't have like an emotional in but surprisingly i think that the movie does everything else so well that i can i can get past that because usually that would be my main thing i'll be like why why should i care and, and I'm guessing that that's a little bit how you feel. Like, why would you care about any of these people, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's similar to Ebert's review. I kind of uh, dog-eared that in case you didn't uh, bring it up with your quotes. But Ebert gave it three and a half out of four stars and wrote, Crashes about characters entranced by a sexual fetish that, in fact, no one has. I'm sure in this day and age, Rob, someone would argue on that point. Um <laughs> Cronenberg has made a movie that is pornographic in form, but not in results. Crash is like a porno movie made by a computer. It downloads gigabytes of information about sex. It discovers our love affair with cars, and it combines them in a mistaken algorithm. The result is challenging, courageous, and original. A dissection of the mechanics of pornography. 
I admire it, although I cannot say I liked it. And then it was on Scorsese's top 10 movies of the 90s. And the Village Voice listed Crash as the 35th best film of the 1990s, which I could not possibly disagree with more. Yeah, I think that they might be pushing it a little too hard. (laughs) (laughs) I don't... Uh, I, I think that... I just appreciate the experience. I I was glued to the screen the entire time. I was just following it. And, and it was so, uh, I don't know, so out there. Yeah, it's not relatable at all, but it's just so, uh, just so committed. It takes itself very seriously in a good way, I think. I guess because I have not seen this ever, nor have I really ever seen anything from it or knew much of anything about it besides just kind of what we've talked about in the general outline of it. I think my imagination and my expectations probably ran away with me, especially with Cronenberg. I mean, Videodrome, The Fly, like the absolute insanity of visual effects and things like that. So for a movie like this, it is so mechanical in execution. Mm -hmm. And so just here it is. It's not like... It's not what I would come to think of with Cronenberg. And even like, especially James Spader, like with that, that I was being serious in Contrarian's Corner. Like Robert California, in my mind, is what James Spader has pretty much been for the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. So to see him reserved and just kind of like very almost like gold bloomy <laughs> in a certain aspect, <laughs> yeah. it was. I think what resulted was me expecting something that this movie wasn't and being bored by it. That's why I already started off with that. I'm definitely open to rewatching this and trying to accept more of it because when I found myself bored by it, then like the, the vulva leg scene, uh, I was just like, come on. (laughs) My emotions were just like, come on. This is weird for the sake of being weird. And I did like, um, you know, it's not like I'm going to rewind it and watch it all day, but the part with uh, Vaughn and uh, James finally like having their sexual encounter. Mm-hmm. Cause for like a little bit, I thought the movie was going to shy away from that, but I did appreciate I was just like, no, it's just all out, out uh, insane fuck fest. Like everyone is in this weird little circle of whatever they're doing. And then the part with uh, Rosanna Arquette and um, Holly Hunter showing that as well. I, I mean, it's definitely weird, and I think that's what I struggled with on this being my maiden viewing was I couldn't get past that. It was just weird for the sake of being weird. But then, like I said, it's like a layered thing. It wasn't weird in the way I thought it was going to be weird. <laughs> so then that kind of like played tricks on my mind. So I'm having a hard time giving it like my, you know, putting my fork in the stake and saying this is where I stand on it because it's quite possible I could watch it again and walk away with something kind of like I was just saying about winter's bone after our discussion ahead with you. Honestly, some movies are like that and you'll find that way more so with older movies that you've known about and your mind has a lot of time to ruminate and build expectation of what you expect it to be. And then when you see it, it's not. So then that could potentially intensify negative feelings you have for it. And that's not completely fair. So that's all there. That's kind of my baggage going into it. Um, yeah, it's actually, I came into it with different baggage because, like I said, I maybe remember 30% of the actual movie from when I saw it in theaters. Um, but I still had kind of a general idea of what I was getting into as, as I popped in the Criterion. And 
my expectations were exceeded. And not because I had low expectations. I mean, over time, uh, basically between what I remembered of Crash and what I know, what I've learned over the years of Cronenberg's career and the other Cronenberg movies I've seen, I mean, I've always assumed that the experience of rewatching Crash was always going to be more positive than that first time. And and that's exactly what it was. You know, uh, there were things I remember. I remember... The, it's like losing your virginity. You just got to get the first one out of the way and then it'll be more. Pleasant. Exactly. The next time, even if everything happens exactly the same way, it's going to be better. So in this case, it was it was what I remembered as far as uh, very little in the way of story. I remembered the ending and being completely underwhelmed and confused, I guess, by the ending that that first yeah. time. I remember being fascinated by the fact that you know, watching some of the some of the shots where James Spader and Deborah Kerr Unger are having sex, I was like, "How are they not really having sex?" <laughs> like back in the day. Now I know that there's ways of, ways of faking that, but it's still, you know, it, it was probably like the most explicit sex in an actual movie that wasn't porn that I'd seen. So I remember that, and it, and I just remember even back then the. Peruvian press, Peruvian reviews, you know, mentioning uh, Elias Cotis's character as being just this really complex, dark figure. And whenever I watched it, when I watched it the first time, I was like, man, he's just a weirdo. And this time watching yeah. it, you know, I'm like, okay, there's more to it. You know, he's, yeah, he's a weirdo, but he's also just this very intense persona. And it, it kind of like what I said in Contrary Corner, right? This is what it would take. This is what James Spader, somebody like James Spader in this movie would be, would find himself attracted to this kind of personality because it's what he's missing from his life. Yeah. And those are all things that I would be able to take more in potentially and digest. And I didn't even do my customary research because I figured I've gone this far in my life with minimal knowledge of this movie. I should probably just experience it first time for what it is. <laughs> um, okay. You said that about the sex scenes. So am I extremely desensitized or has have things def has the game been upped since this movie? Because while the sex scenes are extremely gratuitous, I feel like even on this podcast, we've talked about sex scenes that were a bit more uh, provocative than what we've seen and or what we saw in this movie. I feel like the game's changed and this movie could potentially even squeak by with an R rating by today's standards. Maybe, yes. I mean, I think that it's not, you know, it's funny because I can totally see why it was so shocking in the 90s and why it wouldn't be as shocking. Like now we more, we kind of laugh in a way, you know, in, in, in the 90s, it was just like a scandal. It's like, yeah, how dare they do this on camera? It, yeah, it's not, I, I don't think that the the sex scenes on their own, yeah, that's not what makes it shocking. That's not what like shakes you. I think that the, the context of the sex scenes is what really does it. Yeah. That's what I was trying to kind of get at. Like I felt like the actual act of James and Catherine going at it never really was what I was like, Oh my God. It was like what they were talking about or like the circumstances surrounding it, mm -hmm. uh, which maybe, you know, could be the point of it all I meant. What I said, the character reveal, the protagonist reveal of James Spader's one of the crowning moments in American <laughs> cinema history him coming out from just rimming that chick and being like, I'll be right there. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, he's great. Uh, I really, I, I'm very, very curious about that Cronenberg uh, Ballard Q&A. That's in the criteria. Yeah. Uh, the that other thing awesome. that I heard, you know, before I had to turn it off was that uh, 
Ballard actually said that it was meant to be a cautionary tale in his book, at least. And he's like, well, he even said, well, of course it's a cautionary tale. If it's not a cautionary tale, then then I would be promoting... He said something like, I'll be promoting sick behavior, or he used like a fancier word, but I thought it was funny that to him, at least in the book, you know, it was pretty clear that he was not advocating this lifestyle or that he was, uh, you know, like I said in Contreras Corner as a joke, I was like, you know, I don't think that the movie's trying to tell you that you should, you should follow your obsessions until the very end, <laughs> until the bitter end. Yeah. Uh, but I also think the movie's ambiguous enough or very hands-off in the way that it delivers this information that it could feel like it's like it's not condemning those characters for their for their kinks. You know, it's just kind of telling you, well, there it is, and it's up to you to decide if if what you're watching is a happy ending or a or a sad ending. Uh, so mm-hmm. that was my take watching the movie. So hearing Ballard, like the author of the book, very explicitly say like no i'm saying that this is a bad thing uh that tickled me and i i wonder if if uh Cronenberg has a different take on it but from what i from what i know ballard is happy with the movie so he likes the adaptation yeah and, and you know we were talking about how potentially shocking seeing this movie in the 90s would be imagine reading this book in what was it 1973 <laughs> just being like uh what what's going on here the biggest difference that I found between the book and the movie, do you know what the Vaughn character's goal is in the book versus the movie? Are you familiar with this? Mm-hmm. No. In the novel by J.G. Ballard, from which this film is derived, Vaughn's goal is to achieve sexual climax by crashing his car into a limousine of Elizabeth Taylor and gruesomely killing her, a plot item not retained for the film. So For the best, I would say. Yes, that's. I like the kind of alteration of it with the idea of the Jane Mansfield thing, uh, but yeah, it's we don't need to bother Elizabeth Taylor, especially back then. <laughs> Let's not make her go down to this level. No. Um. Did you uh did you feel cheated by not getting more Holly Hunter? I mean, a little bit, because that aside from James Spader and the car sex movie, that's kind of what I knew was about this was that Holly Hunter was in it. Uh. I knew Casey Jones was in it. I had no idea he was like, I guess the bad guy or the <laughs> the second male lead. So, yeah, I'm gonna need some time to recuperate. It's gonna be a while before I can watch Ninja Turtles again. Yeah, as off put as I was by so much of this movie, I mean, I can admit all the acting is pretty solid. I, I to your question though, I mean, Holly Hunter is Holly Hunter, so I did feel kind of like, uh. I feel like we could have had more if she was in here. She, you know, her character could have been added in this part here just because I wanted to see more of her. I think there's a collection of things as to why I walked away so uh, unfulfilled, underwhelmed by this first viewing of it. But, you know, like I said, it's like losing your virginity. It's like I had sex with a car for the first time tonight. <laughs> and I'm going to have to keep doing it until I get good at it. <laughs> I will say this. It is not a movie like Showgirls or something that uh, it's definitely not like Showgirls, but the, some of those reviews you're reading mm-hmm. at no point in this movie was I like upset with myself for watching it or like thinking that this was doing some really, you know, psychological, I'm going to need some time to recover from this. Yeah. It's really fucking weird, but at no point does it cross that line into morbid, torture porn or whatever phrase you want to use for it it maintain it stayed in its lane in terms of just being 
really weird. And even some of the graphicness of it didn't go too far into the realm of being just really disturbing. So I admire it for that. And selfishly, I like that because it means I'm going to be way more open to watching it again to try to like reinterpret and see if I really dislike it or if it's just kind of shaking off the first viewing and, you know, now I have a, a clear mind and a more uh, realistic set of expectations to go into it. So Cronenberg, in typical fashion, keeping it weird, but didn't cross that line <laughs> into like the Von Trier shit where I'm just like, right. fuck this. I don't want to watch this. <laughs> but, but you know, there was that quote from the guy that said it was perverse and it was sick. And so I think some people don't like it just because it deeply offends them. Yeah. When you're you know, a year removed from the first Toy Story, things were a little bit different than in 1996. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, you know, me saying that makes it seem like morals have dropped and we're so depraved now, which we are, but I don't mean to be that cynical. Anything with a heavy level of sexual content is going to be disturbing to somebody. There are some people, to a fault, I am too open with my sexuality and, you know, talking about sex and things like that. So... A movie like this is not going to bother me, but there are people, more traditionals, and there's still, you know, a large amount of people that think that really movies built around sex are unnecessary or trite. I think that the, the, every sex scene here reveals character or says something about, you know, that world. Yes, but at the same time, it's intentionally gratuitous. Right. I mean, this movie almost, it, it's almost a gimmick with that. You know, I don't know if Cronenberg would be the type to do this knowing it would blow up and create controversy and make cash or whatnot. I think he's just like, I would like to make the movie this way. <laughs> um, but yeah, of course, when you make something like this, the sex is intentionally gratuitous. And that is a very, very quick way to turn people off. So if someone told me that's why they didn't enjoy it, that I'm not even going to begin to argue with you about it. It's like the thing we talked about on Patreon about blue is the warmest color. The sex is vital to that movie, and to the degree it's depicted is also vital to it. But if someone's gonna say, "I don't want to sit and watch that," I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna be like, "Well, you don't get it, man." It's just like, all right, hey, that's that's why not every movie is for everyone. So with this and all my conflicted feelings on it already, if that's where someone started their argument, I don't want to see, you know, Casey Jones's vinegar strokes or you know, <laughs> James Spader just giving it to this chick from behind. You can't really argue with that. Yeah, but I would say, not as an argument or even a counterpoint, but as, as a, I guess a side point, I will give Cronenberg this, which is that there is no other way of telling this story. I mean, if you're telling the story of these people that are sexually obsessed or sexually connected to to car crashes and to car accidents and all this stuff, then if you didn't show us sexual acts in the movie, it would be feel hypocritical you know or it would feel like almost like, like <laughs> it'd be 20 minutes long well that too <laughs> but it would be it's not that i would feel cheated i would just feel like like you were sanitizing the material and that's not something that, it would be an incomplete telling of the story right it's like the whole point is that they they are turned on by this and that they have sex i think that you would rob the movie of some of its power if you kind of like you know faded to black every time that there was about to be a, a sexual encounter. Uh, I think we kind of actually touched on it a little bit when we did the Blues of Warmest Color uh, episode for Patreon, because it was that same thing where I, I remember we were talking about how you would kind of take away from some of the from, from the characters' experiences if you 
if you were less explicit with those sex scenes, I think that that argument could be made. Mm-hmm. And I, I would make that argument again here with Crash, that there's this was the right way, I think, of telling this story. Now, did the story need to be told in the first place? That answer is going to differ <laughs> depending on where your sensibilities lie. It's like, I, I, I wouldn't blame anybody also for just not being interested at all in this, you know, in this world and in and, and seeing James Spader spiral into the the madness that is uh casey jones's addiction to car crashes and sex i don't know (laughs) yeah and that's i agree with everything you said there like i said what i've realized through our discussion of this and just having the few hours since i watched it to process things i think i came into this movie with uh an oversized bag of emotions and preconceived notions going into it so I'm fully open to a rewatch of this, and I think there's a lot of interesting points to discuss on this. Uh, some we've covered, and there's plenty more. You know, for those of you all listening, if you all have any particular takes or any thoughts on it, feel free to send them in to us. But I think at the end of this, I walk away from this giving it a C, with the you know the asterisk of fully open to a rewatch and that could change at any point. But my initial thoughts when this was over was I just kind of left underwhelmed and wondering what Julio thought about it and (laughs) if the conversation was going to be easy or not. So with that being said, and with any of those thoughts that can be interpreted as negative, this still comes in second place in the ranking of the four movies we did in our nineties erotic thriller arc with, uh, Going based off my feelings of how it was over, Jade is still number one. And (laughs) that's just because, you know, Ken King and Michael Bain and the movie was so silly and didn't. Yes, the ending was incredibly mean spirited, but still, I had it a good enough time watching that, that that I should be clear. We're not talking about we're not ranking Scorsese's movies here, so we're not dealing with the best of the best. But Jade and then two would be Crash because I'm the most open to a rewatch of this. And also it tried the most of any of them and was easily the closest attempt at making something different and unique and uh, having some sort of message. And then three, you know, we we got a wide chasm and then three is indecent proposal. And then, you know, just throw it in the trunk of the van that you're never going to drive again and just leave in the backyard and that's showgirls throw it in the trunk of the van that uh that casey jones is going to drive on his next stunt there you go yes uh my god poor david cronenberg i hope he never learns that you consider jade a better movie than any of his movies (laughs) i said what i said but i also said that that could change all right well in my case obviously i'm going to be more positive uh a lot more positive i i would say this is the only good movie we've watched in the in our little <laughs> four movie arc uh i i liked it a lot four stars and i was not expecting to like it that much but i was engrossed it, you know what else helps a hundred minutes you know it's very it true. really it was over before it could get old it almost gets there, but then it's over. But yeah, I would rank them Crash. Then I want to say probably Indecent Proposal. I'm more likely to rewatch that than I would rewatch Jade. Yeah. Uh, 
Jade just grosses me out as much as I like Michael Biehn and King King and all that. Then Jade, but really, there's not that much difference between those two. And then fucking Showgirls it doesn't even deserve to be mentioned on the list. It's just terrible. Showgirls, man, that was like a game changer in no good way, but it definitely it it got Christmas with the Cranks out of the doghouse and <laughs> reset our ranking order and reshaped what we thought a bad movie could be. So we've come a long way on this journey. We've learned a lot of life's lessons and we've seen a lot of boobs and uh <laughs> did we get one wiener on this thing? Um we got a a, a good amount of man ass, but I don't think we got yeah. any wiener. I, I'm trying to think if uh No, I'm thinking of Baccarat. <laughs> yes. It's like we talked about about penises recently, but no, that was Baccarat. Uh no, I think that we were uh we were dongless in this. Baccarat was a better movie than anything we discussed, and it gave us penis. I mean, you put the pieces together there. <laughs> Even if it wasn't Udo Kier penis, it was still penis. <laughs> oh, man. I think, yeah, we need to cool it. I th- that's the plan, obviously, with what we got coming, <laughs> but we need to cool it on these erotic thrillers. It get desensitized to this shit, too. Like I said, after Showgirls, which is just titty, 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 titty for two hours, uh, <laughs> Seeing this, I was just kind of like, yeah, all right. Like, I didn't bat an <laughs> eye at the opening scene of this movie and a woman pulling her titty out and putting it on a, a fucking plane. I was just like, yeah, that, that happens. So <laughs> we need to build our tolerance back up, man. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so with that in mind, uh, what is on deck, Julio? All right. Coming up next... Now, it's uh, Jamie Russell's month when it comes to patrons. That means that, like we mentioned earlier, uh, he gets to pick our bonus episode for the main feed and our bonus episode for the patron feed. So on the main feed, you're all going to hear Alex and I give the contrarian treatment to infamous rotten movie Tango and Cash, which neither of us has seen. I'm excited. Yeah, I think it's at 30%, maybe. And then just for patrons, we will be doing... The King of Comedy. It's an early Scorsese De Niro joint. People seem to be generally positive toward it, but it's never. It feels like it's never listed among Scorsese's greatest hits. No, it's definitely no pun intended. It's for the contrarian because you know your average Joe and Jane aren't going to list it alongside Goodfellas or Casino or something like that. So, uh, but I would like to have all of the notches in my Scorsese filmography filled so be happy to watch that so all that coming your way later this month and we'll be moving into the month of May highlighted by the live stream for the cure which we were very excited to do as we wind down here we want to go ahead and move into perennial plugs we start off by giving a thanks to the festive years they provide our opening and closing tracks they kick us off with last stand take us home or summer of 99 be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Ruthgieser, he's the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics in our Patreon, our webpage, uh, in our upcoming merch. Hans is uh, an author in addition to being an artist. Uh, he has a website, mildemonios.pe, that's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S. That's where you can find links to all his work. 
He has three podcasts, Nación Combi, Marginal, and Contante Sonante. You can find those in any podcatcher. And he has a boatload of novels, most of them about zombies. Uh, the latest one is a zombie anthology it's called Zomo Zombies, made up of stories where the author of each story is telling a story that takes place in the Peruvian region where they live. So that's pretty cool. Hans, thank you for all your work. We appreciate it a lot. And we also appreciate the work that Ms. Zoe Perez puts in for us, helping us keep our social media game fun and fashionable. If you haven't already, be sure to go to our Instagram account, which is at Contrarian Prime on the old IG. Give us a follow. And if you haven't already, follow us on Facebook or like us, however that works. Facebook.com forward slash Contrarian Prime. Zoe, thank you for all the work you do for us. So that's going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Yeah.